Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you're listening to this episode of the iFormerX podcast, and I want to welcome and thank you for joining us. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. And if you are like me, you probably find it pretty challenging to keep up with the latest evidence and clinical practice recommendations for the treatment of sars cov 2 virus, which is responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. Early on in the first few months of the pandemic, treatment with various monoclonal antibodies was initiated. These treatments proved to be effective when used before symptoms became severe, and several products receive emergency use authorization from the FDA. Unfortunately, monoclonal antibodies are parenteral products and must be administered by health professionals. Moreover, the supply of these medications has been limited and they're very costly to produce. So an oral antiviral, which could be easily administered by patients and made available through pharmacies under test and treat protocols would have a clear advantage, but only if they work to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. Well, in December 2021, remdesivir was approved for the treatment of COVID-19, but there are a number of other oral agents, oral antivirals, that have been granted emergency use authorization that appear promising. So when I saw the Move Out study, which was published February 10th of 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine, I thought it was an opportune time to have someone write a commentary and record a podcast about these new oral antivirals. So I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Amanda Applegate and Dr. Mary Beth Dameron to the podcast today. Uh, Dr. Applegate is the Director of Practice Development at the Kansas Pharmacists Association and across the river in Kansas City, Missouri is Dr. Dameron, who is an ambulatory care clinical pharmacist at University Health, which was until recently known as Truman Medical Center. So Amanda and Mary Beth wrote a commentary for iFormerX about the new oral antivirals and why some treatments are favored over others. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Amanda and Mary Beth have maintained our COVID-19 resource page on iFormerX for the past two years. So I hope you'll check out the resource page too. Well, Amanda, Mary Beth, it's great to have you both on the iFormerX podcast today. Welcome. Lovely to be with you both. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity, Stuart. So Amanda, before we talk about the Move Out study, I want to set the stage with a big picture overview of where we are today in terms of COVID-19 infection and its treatment. I know a lot has happened over the past two years, but I think it's important to have some context as to the place in therapy that these new oral antiviral therapies will likely play in the months and perhaps the years ahead. Yes, indeed. So the virus which is actually SARS-CoV-2 and the disease that it causes, COVID, has really been a lesson in watching the scientific process play out in real time for the entire world. We first learned that the virus was spread by droplets and implemented social distancing and hand washing. Then later that surface transmission wasn't common so we could stop quarantining our groceries for 24 hours. Um, And finally, I've established that this virus can be transmitted longer distances, especially in areas with poor ventilation. 
As our knowledge and the supply chains had evolved, we went from six weeks of quarantine to then widespread community masking and continued social distancing. Based on the knowledge of previous coronaviruses, we treated hospitalized severe illnesses as best we could in those early days, learning what worked and what didn't. Scientists and researchers quickly started in vitro and animal studies, um, few of those with results really panning out in vivo, um, but unfortunately with some of those taking hold in what became conspiracy theories such as hydroxychloroquine um, and ivermectin. Somewhat incredibly, just considering the pace of historical development, the first vaccines against COVID were licensed at around the one-year mark of the disease being around to help protect populations. Um, And novel um, parenteral therapies for COVID patients were developed around and licensed around that 18-month mark. Finally, as you mentioned earlier, nearly two years after the news of the virus became public, the FDA gave emergency use authorization to two novel oral antiviral agents, which were heralded as really a key step in that process, um, bringing that quick, relatively cheap ability to keep mild cases from progressing to more severe disease. Um, So really, again, some big changes as we learned how this disease process worked. So Mary Beth, let's let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. As I stated, the paper was published in February of 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's officially entitled Molnupiravir for Oral Treatment of COVID-19 in Non-Hospitalized Patients. Now, we've posted a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and the key results? So this was a phase three multi-center double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial evaluating the safety and efficacy of molnupiravir in non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So those who were 18 years of age and older with a positive COVID-19 test had symptom onset within the past five days or less and had mild to moderate illness with at least one risk factor for progression to severe COVID-19, such as diabetes, heart disease, disease, or obesity were included in the trial. Some key exclusion criteria worth noting include those with history of a COVID-19 vaccine, pregnancy, or severe renal impairment. Participants in the trial underwent one-to-one randomization to receive molnupiravir 800 milligrams or placebo twice daily for a five-day period. The primary efficacy endpoint of the trial was the incidence of hospitalization for any cause or death through day 29. Now, one thing I do feel is worth mentioning as we briefly discuss the results of the trial is that a pre-specified interim modified intention to treat analysis was completed after 50% of the target enrollment. So at the time of the interim analysis, 7.3% of those receiving molnupiravir had been hospitalized or died compared to 14.1% of those receiving placebo. So this was a hot topic after the press release because molnupiravir use demonstrated nearly 50% risk reduction. However, once the final analysis was done, it was found that 6.8% of those receiving molnupiravir experienced hospitalization or death compared to 9.7% in the placebo group, which resulted in a 30% risk reduction. 
the primary safety endpoint was the incidence of adverse events. So the most frequently reported adverse events that occurred in 2% or more of participants in either group were COVID-19 pneumonia, diarrhea, bacterial pneumonia, and worsening of COVID-19. So overall, in summary, it was shown that early treatment with molnupiravir decreased risk of hospitalization or death in unvaccinated adults with COVID-19 who were at risk for progression to severe disease. Well, Amanda, I think this is a well-designed study, but as you point out in the commentary, there are a few caveats. What are the key issues that we should be paying attention to, and what are the limitations of this study? So as Mary Beth described, the study itself is exactly what a novel drug study for an infectious disease is expected to be. International, multi-site, double-blind, parallel group, randomized control trial. It is funded by the drug manufacturer, but does have accuracy vouched for by the study authors. The inclusion criteria that they laid out targeted the group of people that would most likely benefit from that oral outpatient therapy not vaccinated against COVID-19, and at high risk for progression to severe illness. What this did is made it more likely for the study to discern a statistically significant difference in the intervention versus control groups, as low-risk and vaccinated individuals are just overall not as likely to experience the designated efficacy endpoints of hospitalization and death. So overall, that gave us pretty good confidence in the results Um, that in nearly every subgroup, molnupiravir demonstrated a lower risk of experiencing those primary endpoints, but also demonstrated very good safety outcomes overall. However, in the U.S., nearly 89% of the adult or 18 years and older population has received at least one vaccination against COVID, which really limits the generalizability of these study results to the American population. I do want to note that globally, that overall number is lower of vaccinated adults, so it it could be potentially more generalizable as you have a more unvaccinated population. Another concern that we see with this study is that the study enrollment was completed before Omicron was sequenced, so the efficacy of molnupiravir against the currently prevalent and possibly future strains of SARS-CoV-2 is truly unknown there have not been any follow-up studies published to date. The good news, however, is is that genetic analysis of many of the infections in the studies was performed, um, and molnupiravir was found to be effective against all of the strains present in that study. Um, So overall, um, good news, even with some of those limitations in place. So Mary Beth, in the commentary, you make it clear that Among the four oral antivirals that are currently available for use in the United States under emergency use authorization, molnupiravir is the least favored. And and I'm wondering why that is. Uh, Remdesivir, which is the only agent that's been fully approved by the FDA for the treatment of COVID-19, isn't favored either. It seems Paxlovid and monoclonal antibodies have been given favorable recommendations by the NIH's COVID-19 treatment guideline panel. So I'm hoping you can give us some insights as to why some agents are recommended over others. Don't they really all work the same? 
Yeah, this is a great question, Stuart. So Paxlovid or ritonavir-boosted nermotrelvir is the preferred agent of choice for the management of non-hospitalized adults with COVID-19. So I'll start there. It is recommended for use, like I mentioned, in non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate disease who are 12 years of age or older, weigh 40 kilograms or more, experienced an onset of symptoms within the past five days, and are at high risk of disease progression. It disrupts the replication of the virus in the body by binding to and inhibiting a protease that is crucial to the virus's function and replication. It's been given a favorable recommendation by the NIH's COVID-19 treatment guideline panel, as you mentioned, based on the results of the EPIC-HR trial, which did demonstrate a reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death through day 28 by 89% in those receiving Paxlovid compared to placebo. Now, the main limitation of its use is due to the high likelihood or potential for drug-drug interactions, which is primarily because of ritonavir. With ritonavir being a strong CYP3A4 inhibitor, it's very important that we are reviewing a patient's medication list before determining whether or not this is an appropriate medication to use. So there are a few resources that are available for guidance regarding potential drug-drug interactions that I did want to point out. There is the Liverpool COVID-19 Drug Interactions website, and actually the NIH COVID-19 treatment guideline does include a nice table that they've divided into three different sections based on certain medications that you should consider use of an alternative COVID-19 therapy, those that could be temporarily withheld for the time being, or those that could be managed by dose adjustment and monitoring of adverse effects. So next in line in order of preference is remdesivir, which, like you mentioned, has been FDA approved for use. Now, similar to Paxlovid, this can be used in patients that are 12 years of age or older and weigh 40 kilograms or more. This works by inhibiting the SARS-CoV-2 RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is imperative for viral replication. The pine tree trial that focused on use of this medication demonstrated an 87% relative reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death in those receiving three consecutive days of IV remdesivir when compared to placebo. But since it is given as an IV infusion for three consecutive days, I do feel logistical constraints will limit administration in most cases. But nonetheless, maybe an option if Paxlovid is not available or is not clinically appropriate. Now, in addition to a few monoclonal antibodies, the last agent I did want to mention, which is what this commentary was all about, is molnupiravir. And it's an alternative therapy option that is only recommended for use when neither of the preferred treatment options are available, feasible to use, or clinically appropriate. So as mentioned in the commentary, it is a mutagenic ribonucleoside that introduces errors into viral RNA. So as these errors build up, the virus is rendered unable to replicate or is killed. So it is recommended for use in our non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are 18 years of age or older and experienced an onset of symptoms within five days or less. So in the move-out trial, 
molnupiravir decreased the rate of hospitalization or death by 30% in non-hospitalized patients when compared to placebo. So if you're comparing this efficacy to that of the preferred agents like Paxlovid or Remdesivir, it is significantly lower, which is why it's not routinely recommended for use unless these other agents are not available or for some reason can't be used. So Amanda, I'd like to end the episode to talk about the role of pharmacists, particularly community and ambulatory care pharmacists. It it seems likely that we'll have several treatments approved for the treatment of symptomatic COVID-19 infection. And in places where pharmacists can engage and test and treat protocols, how would it work? Who's a good candidate for treatment? Who shouldn't be treated? And when should a pharmacist refer a patient to get additional evaluation? Stuart, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about is that pharmacists are wonderful at the test and treat protocol for these types of illnesses. When you look at the outpatient therapies for COVID-19, the primary goal of all of them is really to limit the morbidity and mortality of this truly awful disease. When the emergency use authorization for molnupiravir was published, the FDA did limit use of these agents and did not include pharmacists, but it also limited the use of the agents to patients at high risk of progression to severe illnesses. So part of this is really acknowledging the ongoing supply chain and distribution concerns overall. The emergency youth authorization did allow for utilization of these treatments in patients who have had one or more vaccinations against covid Um, So fairly wide open access to adults in America right now. The more people that can be kept out of the hospital, the better. So increasing access and use of oral antiviral agents is hopefully in the future. With pharmacies in many cases serving as the primary access point for COVID testing, locating a test and treat strategy under the same roof can help improve access and decrease barriers to treatment in many communities, How many of you have heard the statistics on how many patients get prescribed a medication at the physician's office and never make it to the pharmacy for pickup? So locating those together is an ideal way to use this. All pharmacists are well-educated in triaging who can receive treatment from a pharmacist and who should then be referred to further evaluation and care. I don't think any community pharmacist I know makes it through a week without needing to make that call for one reason or another. Pharmacists in the community and ambulatory settings are able to assess patients for signs and symptoms of severe disease, looking at things such as blood pressure, respiratory rate, temperature, and oxygen saturation. So when it comes to COVID, that's the rule in, rule out for treatment for these, in addition to looking at what types of treatments may be available and what medication interactions may be in existence. So patients who may already be in progress to severe disease, so somebody that may have low oxygen saturation, very high temperature, elevated or very decreased blood pressure, um, those patients have that severe disease or are in progression to that and should be immediately referred, which pharmacists are more than capable of doing. Using these highly trained medication experts at the community and ambulatory level to keep people out of hospitals that are having mild symptoms of COVID-19 seems like a truly ideal use of the healthcare system to me. 
Well, Mary Beth, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today on the iFormerX podcast. And while molnupiravir might eventually get approved for the treatment of COVID-19, based on the data we have so far, it seems other agents may prove to be more effective. But this is an evolving area of practice, and it's obviously critically important to stay abreast of the latest primary research data and clinical practice guidelines. And if you are currently providing care to patients under a COVID-19 test and treat protocol in your practice, leave us a comment and tell us the agents you're using. Only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. If you are a health professional or studying to become a health professional, join iFormerX. Sign up today. It's free. And be sure to check out the American Pharmacists Association's board prep and recertification program. We've partnered with APHA to make this podcast and the written commentary available for board recertification credit. To learn more, click on the link posted below the commentary on our website. And before I sign off today, I'd like to take a moment to thank the pharmacists and residents at the Providence Medical Group in Portland, Oregon, for their ongoing and steadfast support of iFormerX. This amazing group of clinicians work in an interprofessional team environment to provide high-quality care to the good folks in Oregon, and they've made iFormerX a part of their professional development. When I reach out for volunteers to write commentaries, peer review, or participate in podcasts, someone from the Providence Medical Group always volunteers. So thank you, my friends. You're awesome. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends. Mm-hmm.